I don't know about you, but lately I've been finding a lot more stories. The last novel I read, the last movie I watched, where the ending was open-ended. They went all inception on me and didn't tell me what happened to the people. Anyone get frustrated by this? Okay, maybe just me. So <laughs> I apparently don't deal well with ambiguity. I want to know. I've spent all this time with characters. I've seen the plot. I want to know what happens to them. But I guess it helps me not be disappointed because maybe I wouldn't like the choice that the author made. So maybe this does give me a sense to create my own ending. Maybe it's poetic. Maybe the author just couldn't decide. Well, we're going to look at a beginning, a middle, and end today. And I'm going to tell you where our journey is going. And if you want to turn to the book of Hosea, that is where we're going to be headed. And while you do that, we're going to look at three chapters, Hosea 1, 2, and 3. And in the beginning, we're going to see it's a third-person narrative. It's describing a setting of a relationship as a metaphor. In the second chapter, we're going to hear God. He is going to begin to narrate and tell us some things. And by the end, we're going to hear from Hosea himself as he ends the story. So, as we approach this, I want us to look first at the relationship of Hosea and Gomer. And now, Hosea was one of God's prophets. And if you're not sure, the prophets were used by God as often as visual illustrations for an invisible God. God had messages for his people, and he not only had the prophets speak words, at times he had them do certain things with their lives in order to be a message for the people as well. And it wasn't easy. Anybody who thinks that being a voice piece for God is an easy thing to do, is glamorous, then they haven't met the OG prophets of the Old Testament because they had some things going on. They were having to tell people bad news. One guy had to lay on his side for a year. Somebody had to cook his food over feces. You know, good things. Glamorous, right? So let's see what Hosea was asked to do with his life in order to bring a message from the Lord. We're going to begin by reading verses 2 and 3 of Hosea 1. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go, marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. Okay, this is lovely. First assignment, go marry someone who has had a different lifestyle than you. And... Because this is noted that some of her children would be from other men, then, and the things that we read about in the further chapters, we realize that Gomer is not going to be faithful to her husband. And I don't know how Hosea might have felt about that assignment. But we're first going to look at this as a metaphor, as I said. God was telling Israel, this is how you have acted toward me. We might often think about God and his relationship to his people as a father and children. That tends to be the common metaphor. So here, why do we think that he switched over to a different metaphor, a husband and a wife situation, to represent himself and his people? That might seem odd or a little uncomfortable. But marriage in this that he's highlighting here is that it is exclusive. 
and that it's meant to last a lifetime, and it's meant to be with two people and no others. So God is saying, I have made a commitment with you, and you are mine, and I am yours, and you have turned your back on me. You have cheated on me. And putting into those contexts, that is different than a father-child relationship. That holds different feelings, a different tone. And so we're thinking about what the Lord is communicating to his people, a different type of love, a different type of commitment he's asking from them. So let's look what's next. Hosea has some children. The Lord said, name the child Jezreel. This is his first son. I am about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. Great baby name number one. Number two, soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name your daughter Lo-Ruhamah, not loved, for I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. Great baby name number two. Number three, after Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, not my people. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. So, we always think of parents choosing the most positive, encouraging names for your children. My name means bold. Perhaps you named your child beauty or strength. Did anyone like to choose a negative name in here? You don't have to admit it. That's fine. Well, I can't imagine the kids being stuck with such great names, but... Maybe they didn't know what it meant for a while. But God is trying to communicate to his people that this is the depth of how they have hurt him. That these children probably were known in the community as some of them not being from Hosea. We're not sure which ones, but I'm sure the people knew. And they already had a reputation as being illegitimate children. But Hosea, first of all, he gives them names that every time they said their name, the people were to hear a message from the Lord. But number two, Hosea still had them in his household. And so before we get too sad, we want to keep reading because immediately after God says, you are not my people, you are not loved, he comes back around and gives them hope. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands on the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves. They will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. And that day you will call your brothers Ami, my people. You will call your sister Ruhamah, the ones I love. So maybe the kids got to change the names. Maybe they got to drop the low from their name as God had a new message for his people. And this is where we first see God's abundant grace in this story. God is not saying that Israel's sins don't have consequences. He's saying that after punishment, after the break in their relationship, he is looking to forgive them again. He was the one who was wronged, and yet he is bringing about restoration in this relationship. 
So here and now, if you look, these words come one right after another. Just at the same time he is seeing them betraying him, he is already envisioning the restored relationship, the forgiveness. That's grace. Okay. Good story, right? We're all good. That's a nice little package. Wrap it up in a bow. We can be done. Except there's chapter two. Now, I have to admit, I was the person who was excited to preach this. I might have even volunteered to preach this message. And I forgot about chapter two. Because I like the summary story, and it's done, and that's all I remembered. And then I started studying, and I was like, what did I sign up for? And what is this message? Because it's going to get a little messy, but let's work through it. Sorry, I'm behind on my verses. We're going to look at the cultural context of chapter 2. The problem all started because I was thinking about Game of Thrones. Because I don't watch Game of Thrones. But everyone on the internet apparently watches Game of Thrones. Because all my social media feeds are people very excited for this final season of Game of Thrones. But I was trying to figure out, why don't I like watching this? My, my in-laws were really trying to convince us on Easter that we needed to watch this show. And I was like, I like good storytelling. And I like good characters. But there's certain places where you just, there's certain things that trigger for me. And I don't like watching media. And I don't like wa- reading books that end up having um, issues with women and assault. And I, that's just where I have to draw the line for my mental, emotional health. And if there's some of that in there, then I tend to not watch those shows. When females feel vulnerable. So then I get to Hosea 2. And I'm like, this here, there's verses in the Bible here. And it's talking about Israel again. This is God speaking. And he's telling Israel that they're going to be punished for their sins. But remember our metaphor was a husband and a wife who had chosen prostitution over him. So when they describe Israel's punishment, there are some descriptions of a woman in prostitution being shamed and being brought her sins forth in front of the community. And it didn't feel very good to read that. And I wondered, why is this here? Because I know God loves females. I know God loves me. And it just wasn't my favorite verses to read here. So I freaked out a little bit, (laughs) and I tried to study some more and read and figure out, okay, who was this letter written to? What is the cultural context? What was the purpose behind this descriptive metaphor? So those who would have read the book of Hosea would have been a male audience, and they were likely the leaders of the Jewish community at the time. And so while I tend to think of all the Bible is for me, it is for me. But I have to see who it was for first before I figure out how I can relate and what I can learn from it. And so this was written to a group who likely felt it counterintuitive for women to have equality with them in their society. And this metaphor of a wife leaving her husband in front of all of the community would have been one of the biggest fears that a man might have. Because then it wasn't just about him as a husband personally being scorned, but the entire community was looking at him like, what, your wife chose not to stay with you? What's going on there? 
I thought you could provide for her in every way. He, they probably had a reputation if a woman were to leave her husband. And if she was considered part of his household and he is supposed to be in charge, that's an even greater scorn on his communal reputation. So I feel like the words were intentionally provocative here. So God is describing there's a woman who was found in prostitution and here's what's going to be her punishment. And maybe the readers were like, yes, that is what she deserves. And then God says, guess what? You men, leaders of Israel, you are that woman. You are the ones betraying me. And this is the punishment that you deserve. Imagine the reaction then as they kept reading. Attention getting words that they were the ones who were being unfaithful. That they were ones scorning God in front of communities and nations. God was saying, my reputation is now hurt because of you. But again, it's not many verses later that God is coming back to them. He doesn't leave them to sit in their despair long. He says these words. He's speaking again as the husband and wife metaphor. I will win her back once again. I will win the people of Israel back. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. When that day comes, said the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. So these are countercultural words because punishment that was originally described was expected. But a husband going after his wife, not just commanding that she return, but pursuing her with love, wooing her back. This was not a usual picture. This was about love, not a wife as part of a ownership. God is saying something foreign to their culture and he's saying it about himself. A deity in the time of Israel, they would have seen God's worship because you worship out of fear. You worship because they're going to punish you and because they are angry and, and all you have to do to appease them are just horrible things. And this God says, yes, I'm angry, but I love you so much that I'm speaking tenderly to you. I'm loving you. I'm asking you to be mine again. Pride is put aside there. That is not the kind of God that people around them worshipped. That is not the gods that they were choosing to worship. Much different here, this abundant grace. So looking at the entirety of the chapter and the audience, I choose to trust that these words were meant for a purpose, for that audience at the time. So now we get to chapter 3, and as I said, we're hearing from Hosea himself. We're going to zoom in and look on this relationship as two people because they weren't just a metaphor. These are two real people with a real relationship. What did that look like? What struggles were there? In verse 1, in chapter 3, it says, Hosea says, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, 
even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So Hosea was told by God, not just go get your wife. Love your wife again. What did love even look like in that time of arranged marriages? I have to go there. Fiddler on the roof is what I think of. There's this couple, and they've been married for years, and suddenly their daughter starts to fall in love, and they look at each other and question, I don't know, do we love each other? We were put together. We were arranged. And Tevia, the husband, asks Golda, his wife, do you love me? And she has to think about it. She goes through a list of all the things that they've been through and all the things that she's done, and finally she comes to this conclusion. For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. For 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Love is clearly an action worked out over the long haul. It's about commitment and learning to love and partner together. God is asking Hosea, go love your wife again. Even if that takes time, it's not a fleeting feeling. It's an action. It's intentional. Because this was hard. Marriage is an intimate bond, and Gomer chose to step away from that bond. And it hurt. But Gomer has expectations put on her too. We don't know what sent her into prostitution in the first place. In that society, it could have been debts. It could have been debts her family owed. But we just have to wonder, why did she go back if she had a marriage and and a household and finally was secure? No matter what put her there in the first place, Why did she choose to leave? Was it something she was trapped in? Did she not feel secure that her marriage would last? Whatever the reasons, here in Hosea 3, it says, stick with this marriage. You need to commit to it 100%. And Hosea asks her to stay with him. Now, there is an aspect of this relationship that Hosea says, we're going to put on hold for a while. Sex is a part of marriage, and it's a bonding and a vulnerable thing. And Hosea says, that's not going to be a part of our relationship for a little while. And God uses that as a metaphor too, because there's going to be time to heal. Now, I have to say that this example of reconciliation, I didn't see it for a while in personally. I knew families who broke apart. I had friends whose parents got divorced when I was younger. And some of those reasons were because the spouses chose another. So I kind of just thought that's what happens. But I remember my parents' friends, who they had been my youth group leaders when I was younger, and I heard that she'd had an affair. And yet her husband said, I'm to blame with some of this too. And they reconciled and they're still married today. And that was the first time I saw that 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 could happen, that there was abundant grace in a marriage. And if you haven't seen that in person, I'm going to bring up another Broadway show because we can see it sometimes in art. I know some people here have seen Hamilton. 
And I think that that is just a beautiful way of looking at reconciliation because it's in music and, and it's on stage and it moved me, I know. <laughs> but Alexander Hamilton is shown as giving a lot of his time to his work instead of his wife. And that distracts him. And when another woman comes his way, he's distracted. And then in the song, It's Quiet Uptown, the lyrics say, there are moments that the words don't reach. There is a grace too powerful to name. And Eliza forgives him. And Katie and Mikey saw Hamilton um, with their family. And afterward, Mikey sent this blog post to me that his brother-in-law wrote. And I want to share some words with you because his brother-in-law was moved so much by this picture of grace on stage. And he felt that it spoke to him about God's grace. He said, for an innocent God to live with a guilty creation, to remain in relationship means to assume our debts over and over and over. And that's an uncomfortable thought for me, to be in that position, he said. But in Hamilton and Eliza's mutual tears, and Hamilton simultaneously humbled and freed by Eliza's action, and Eliza broken, but ultimately the stronger one, I see what all of this language is trying to point to. This is what grace feels like, and it is too powerful to name. So here we are at the end of the story, but it's open-ended. I don't know what happens to Hosea and Gomer after this. I kind of have a visual in my mind, because in Hosea 3, 5, God has a message of hope. He says, but afterward, the people, I'm very sorry, afterward the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant. They will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. And I think with that beautiful picture, I imagine Gomer and Hosea with many happy years in front of them. Okay, so what do we do with this? This is a book written not for us originally. What can we gain from it? I like how biblical commentator James Nagalski said, prophetic texts like this one call for a decision. Either one chooses privately and corporately to live in a way that honors God, or one does not. Are we, in a real sense, these decisions parallel the same kind of decisions we face today? Are we headed down the right road as a nation, as a church, as individuals? Did previous generations make the right choices? And will we? God's message was to a community of people. So what does our community look like? Are we being faithful to God as Christians in America? We've strayed from God. We've worshipped other gods, especially when those gods look like ourselves. We've dishonored his name in our actions and lack of action. Are there even things that could threaten our fidelity to God here at Echo? Are there things that are distracting us from what God wants us to be? Personally, what things are preventing us from staying true to the Lord? What are the gods we are worshiping? Yes, we as a people, we as individuals, we have cheated on God. We have twisted his words. We have lived antithetical to his teaching. We have worshiped other gods. So what can we do? 
Fortunately for us, God has taken the first step. He's reached out to us. He's given us eternal grace through Jesus, but he's given us daily grace by saying that we can be healed with others and with him. The end of our story, it hasn't been written yet. It's open-ended. We get to choose. There is still time to heal our relationship with others. You know, Hosea showed an act of grace personally to his wife, yet he was to represent grace to a community. When we offer grace to other people as Christians, our act demonstrates the grace of God. So if we're looking at this story, I just want to ask you, if you have felt wounded by an intimate relationship, by a close friendship, by a family member whose decisions have ripped your relationship apart, what act of grace can you show? And if you're in a situation that's harmful, that doesn't mean you have to get close to a person again. But just like God offered hope along with his judgment of sin, maybe your act of grace is to have hope that someone would repent of their sins and find their own healing in God. Maybe your act of grace is taking one step closer to forgiving someone right now that's on your heart who has betrayed you and hurt your trust. Maybe your act of grace is saying, God, help me even want that. I don't even want to offer hope or forgiveness. Maybe that's that next act for you. But you don't have to do it alone. We can walk together on the path of grace as a church. Find people you trust and can walk with you. Our story, the end of our story, is not written yet. We get to choose. It's open-ended. Our relationship with God, yes, it has been broken. Every one of us. We've all strayed, but God calls us back to him again and again. Even if you've experienced consequences from personal sin, God still offers you grace. But again, we don't have to do it alone. We all need this grace. Let's walk together toward learning what God's reconciliation is all about. I'm grateful for the God who sees our story currently. Simultaneously, he sees what our story will be. We're going to have some visuals in this series about grace. And so the words at the bottom is the end of our stories haven't been written yet. Sydney G. drew this for us. And we want to just sit. Be that person waiting for the end of your story. God is ready to meet you there. We're not alone. Let's come together and let's live out his abundant grace and trust in him. Let's pray. God, your grace looks different every day and we thank you for providing for us. We thank you for offering it new every morning, your mercy and your grace because we need it every day. Show us the ways that we can draw close to you again, just as you care to draw close to us. 
we confess to you that we have broken this relationship. We have strayed from you, Lord, and we admit that before you now. Personally and communally as Christians, we have not stayed faithful to you. Please forgive us and show us how you want us to be healed and draw close to you again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.